How do you describe a fashion icon? Riotous. Outrageous. Simply brilliant. Larger than life personality. He was everywhere all the time. It felt like he never slept. He was an amazing person, huh? He was incredible. It wasn't just his talent. As a human being, he was really, he was really amazing. Carl was an incredible person. Maestro. And when the maestro waved the baton, <laughs> they, they rushed to fulfill his wishes. And I will be eternally grateful to him. Ingenious, innovative, provocative, Karl Lagerfeld pushed envelopes in the fashion world that hadn't even been mailed yet. His larger-than-life persona and designs dominated 90s fashion. By reinventing an iconic fashion house, taking the old and making it new, Karl Lagerfeld became an icon himself. Welcome to In Vogue the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. It might be hard to imagine now, but during the 1970s and early 1980s, the French fashion house Chanel was, well, gathering dust and in need of a remodel. By then, the house of Chanel was a kind of grand dame in the fashion world. Founded by Gabrielle Coco Chanel in 1909 as a millinery termed fashion house, Chanel was synonymous with French glamour, modern elegance and luxury with timeless codes, symbols of the house, that included the little black dress, the tweedy cardigan jacket suit, and of course, the iconic number five fragrance. Another veteran, Coco Chanel, shows her traditional love for materials and their texture. This velvet chenille party dress features an attractive turned back neckline, as the style which for many women has become almost a classic uniform. I think it had become very bourgeois and dowdy and there was no sense of excitement. This, of course, is Anna Winter. Of course, the clothes were beautifully made and there were the great Chanel suits and the pearls and all the things that we associate with Chanel, but it was repetitious. It was sort of unattainable. I mean, I don't know if I even packed it in the fashion cupboard. Amanda Harlick is a fashion muse, stylist and consultant. In the early 1980s, though, she was a junior fashion editor at Harper's & Queen magazine. Certainly when I was a junior fashion editor at Harper's, Chanel was something you just completely didn't touch. After Coco Chanel's death on January the 10th, 1971, the creative vision of the brand had languished and sales had flagged. Owner Alain Wertheimer wanted to jolt the house out of its stupor and bring Chanel into the modern world. Enter Karl Lagerfeld. But when you design, are you designing for every woman? Or Nobody you... designs for every woman. Everybody designs for an idea of a woman, for what is in fact his or her personality of what's going on in fashion, you see. Yeah? Lagerfeld was a German-born fashion designer who'd been on an upward career trajectory since the 1950s when he'd worked as an assistant to Pierre Balmain. He subsequently became the artistic director of the couture house Jean Patou, 
but found his true calling as a freelance designer for such ready-to-wear houses as Fendi and Chloe. Over the years, he developed a reputation as a true original. I just do what my inner voices tell me. I'm the Joan of Arc of design. I work with instinct. Sometimes I'm surprised myself. In 1982, Wertheimer brought Lagerfeld on as creative director and gave him a mission. Bring back Chanel. As designer Tom Ford puts it, When Carl went to Chanel, I think it was the first time, perhaps, I mean, certainly the first time I remember that a designer remade a company. I think also was a challenge for him because a lot of people said that it was a dead house. Why would you even do that? You shouldn't do that. Eric Wright is an American designer who was Lagerfeld's right hand for decades at Chloe, Fendi and Chanel. And I think he liked the challenge of showing people that they were wrong, that there was something there to be done. Karl Lagerfeld might not have been the most intuitive choice for Chanel either. For one thing, he was German, taking over a famous French design house. But it soon became clear that, even though some French fashion insiders were suspicious of him, Karl was the perfect designer to reinvent the sensibility of Coco Chanel for the new tastes of the 80s and 90s. He wasn't afraid to play with the, the legacy of Chanel, and he could do it so well because he knew it so well. Laird Borelli Person, Vogue's archive editor, says that there's a key trait to understand why Lagerfeld was so suited to the task of updating a venerable old fashion house. He was obsessed with history, but he never felt beholden to it. He really found some sort of synchronicity somehow with Chanel. She was elusive, and, and maybe, maybe Carl was too. They were both obsessed with moving forward, uh, not looking back. In fashion, you're over the minute you don't want to go ahead anymore. If you think the way it is, it's okay, you know it, you got it, and there's nothing better and nothing else to do. As long as your mind is open to changes, it can go. You can be 100 years old and can be still okay. She left such a rich vocabulary of Chanelisms that he could really play on. And I think he absolutely knew inside and out. He was very scholarly. He was surrounded by books. I mean, he had miles, he had libraries. He was an omnivore of media, of books, but he also delved really deeply into subjects and, and kind of became a sponge. And the need to know and understand Chanel was no different. He studied everything there was to know about the house and about the modern woman who created it. I think once he knew he was interested in Chanel, as he is with anything, he did a phenomenal research. I mean, he becomes obsessive. And so it's just he knows, he reads everything, collects everything, sees everything, so he, he can have a true idea of what Chanel is, also as a human being. And so Carl became something of a Chanel savant. He knew the intricacies of every Chanel season and soon identified the iconic brand pillars. The little black dress, the camellia flower, the cardigan jacket suit, the 255 quilted purse, and the beige shoe with the black toe. With that great admiration of Coco Chanel's work, came the slightest bit of rivalry. I mean, he, he would often pit himself against Chanel because, you know, he knew exactly every line that was being, you know, written about her or 
everything that's recorded that she said or written. But equally, he was, he was very competitive with her, which is quite touching, really. Amanda Harlick again, fashion stylist, editor, and Carl's muse and consultant. He recognised and respected what an incredible thing that she'd done, actually setting up that house. Carl actually would compare himself to her in a sense of their similarity. He did that thing of trying on a Chanel cardigan and he struck a pose that was just, you know, classic Gabrielle. And so, with the weight of Chanel's history on his shoulders, but with a mission to push the brand forward into the new, globally connected world of the 90s, Karl Lagerfeld set out to change the fashion world by making something old new again. How he did it after the break. Hey, run-through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, hand-picked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. During Karl Lagerfeld's tenure as creative director at Chanel, attending a runway show for his collections was always an adventure. You never really knew what you were going to get when you arrived at a Chanel show. Mark Holgate is Vogue's fashion news director. It could be, you know, Chanel models on skates. It could be Chanel models walking down the runway with surfboards. I remember the shock and the, the drama of Carl doing faded blue denim for Chanel. It was a kind of shock horror moment. He always, he always got it right in that sense of understanding that fashion had to be about change and what was new. And a winter again. He was always interested, and he was always interested in bringing the outside world into the house of Chanel. So that sense of modernity and culture would explode onto the runway. You never quite knew what you were going to see or what it was going to be, but it was always exciting and different. It's just two hours before the Chanel show. The atmosphere is one of controlled tension. The key to Lagerfeld's update of Chanel was all in the mix reimagining a classic piece that would be immediately recognisable as Chanel, but then turning it on its head by introducing some elemental reference to contemporary pop culture. The quintessential Chanel look was essentially a suit, a boucle suit that had little weights hemmed so that it hung perfectly. It would be worn with a blouse. There might be a Chanel camellia brooch on there. There would be a very classic pump there might be a leather bag with a, a gilt and leather chain strap. It is very kind of super, super chic, super kind of French idea of dressing. And then you had Carl look at that and basically deconstruct it and take it apart. So a Chanel tweed jacket could be worn with a pair of jeans. And what was interesting was that Carl would put that on the runway and then you would look to the supermodels of the era who would be running around after the show, coming out, wearing a Chanel cardigan jacket with a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, and maybe they'd have some rock star boyfriend on their arm and the bag on the other. It's not only that they have to keep the tradition of the past, 
but they also have to continue to evolve, uh, to, 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 to go with times and fashion. Uh, if you let it in the hand of the people who own it and nothing else, eh? knowledge of the past and add knowledge of the future. It just fused this idea that the pieces themselves, which were essentially beautifully constructed classic items, could be repurposed and reworked into such a kind of devastatingly kind of clever pop cultural way. And while Lagerfeld was bringing classic Chanel looks into a contemporary context, he also made sure that everything that surrounded his designs fit the story he was trying to tell. It wasn't just that he was designing the clothes and the accessories. It wasn't just that he was designing the couture. It wasn't just that he was creating these incredible and memorable runway shows. He was also photographing every single campaign. He was choosing the models. He was choosing the ambassadors for the house, the people that would be out in the world wearing Chanel on the red carpet in perfume advertising campaigns. He had complete control and a complete understanding of the language and the visual presentation of Chanel. One of the most important parts of that visual presentation the celebrities and models who became the faces of the house. My very first show was for Carl and Chanel, and that was very special. It was the pivotal moment in my career that transformed me from a shy teenager into a supermodel. This is Claudia Schiffer, supermodel and global fashion icon. I first met Carl when I was 18 at a fitting in his studio in Paris on Rue Cambon. He had seen my UK Vogue cover by Herperitz and asked me to come in. So before I knew it, I was fitted for his new collection and the next day I found myself driving to Deauville to shoot my first Chanel campaign, photographed by Carl. I remember responding over the fact that we were the only two people full of energy at 3 a.m. when in the morning. He was always full of energy. I think Carl's scope of work didn't just evolve, it continually reinvented it season by season. If I had not this non-stop uh, contact and dialogue with the world of photography, magazine, advertising, it never stops. And I think that's very, very important because a designer after collection can become isolated. Huh? I'm never isolated because I'm involved in so many things. Carl could internalize and synthesize elements of popular culture in just the same way that he soaked up all that fashion history. It became clear that one of the hallmarks of Karl Lagerfeld's Chanel was that he wasn't just referencing classic French designs, he was also pulling inspiration from, well, from everywhere. He took street culture and made it look relevant for Chanel and for his customers. I mean, it was, it was so full of energy and, and love of life and it was fun and it took all the moments that you, you associate with that hip-hop culture, but it never looked out of place or strange. Part of the reason that Lagerfeld was able to seamlessly combine elements of hip-hop and street culture into the historical legacy of Coco Chanel's style was, as designer Eric Wright recalls, that Carl really, truly loved them both. We'd be driving around Paris and his Rolls Royce, but what was blasting out of the car was rap music. And people were like, what is going on? <laughs> There were the three little girls who were salt and pepper. We adored them, so they really influenced us a lot. There was also the tiny girls, three of them. You won't, you won't, I can't remember their name. Wow. TLC is always best dressed. Yes, 
We, uh, I mean, he was crazy about them. And we photographed them tons. I mean, and they would come to the studio and just sit on his lap and laugh. And it was a, a creative sharing. It wasn't about just using rap jewelry and stuff like that. They influenced him. They were his muses. You have to understand that we worked with music blasting loud. And what we were listening to was that music. Okay? And so we would work for hours and hours and hours. So we were totally up on the music of rappers. And that was, it was reflected if you, in the shows of the music. It wasn't the chic ladies who were going to chic lunches and stuff like that. These kids really, really inspired him. He understood what those customers needed, but his, his muses were those girls. Carl would continue to push the envelope and experiment with other cultures. He pushed and pushed and pushed until one day the envelope ripped open. I'll never forget it. The dress. It was 1994 and Eric Wright was working at Chanel's studio in Paris. And all of a sudden the receptionist called and said, there's four men down here for you. And I said, well, I don't have an appointment. And they said, no, they're here for you. And I was like, oh, okay. And these four bodyguards arrived and just said, you can't sit in the window anymore. You have to move over here. So I called Carl, freaking out. He goes, listen, calm down. I'm almost there, da 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 And then he arrived and explained to me what had happened. For the spring-summer 1994 Haute Couture runway, Claudia Schiffer had worn a dress that, as the world would soon learn, featured verses from the Quran embroidered across the top. The condemnation of Lagerfeld's use of the sacred Islamic text came from all over the world. Lagerfeld, for his part, confessed that he had no idea he was using a sacred religious text in his design. It was something that we had asked of someone in the studio who was from there what it was. And she said, oh, you guys, this is the most beautiful poem of love. But we didn't realize who the poem was about, who the poem, who had written the poem, if I'm not mistaken. And so, as she told us, it was divine and, and read, and also started translating it for us. And we just thought, oh, wow, this is so beautiful. So then it was put on the dress as an embroidery, as a poem written on a dress. Ironically, the verse printed on the dress was about seeking guidance. But as Wright explains, it's something that we should have been aware of and we should have, should have gone deeper. And as we're usually working ton incredibly fast, so we didn't take the time to really, and I'm being honest, huh? we didn't take the time to really investigate. Looking back today, yeah, it's really, really true. I mean, there's an awareness today that didn't exist then also. Huh? You were just in the mode of creating. Ultimately, the dress was burned and Carl apologized. Photographers were even instructed to send and destroy the negatives. He didn't try to shove it off. He didn't try to, uh, like, say, oh, blah, 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 blah. No, he, he took responsibility for it. It was sincere because he was very, he's very respectful of religion. So it, it's something where literally we should have gone deeper. Kim Jenkins, fashion historian. We didn't call it cultural appropriation in the decades earlier. And so they would see it as cross-pollination or inspiration. You know, oh, this is just all part of being a true artist. The uproar around the dress was part of a turning point when the fashion industry began to recognize that designers need to, at the very least, understand the history and significance of their inspirations before they appropriated them. The 90s were a time where the fashion world, at least, 
was really celebrating our increasing global interconnectedness. So by the 1990s, again, it's not really called a cultural appropriation. It is us entering, you know, headfirst into globalization, you know, just really kind of peak globalization. Um, and we start moving at a quicker speed and internet helps that along. All of this is to say that it's in the air. It just seems so natural and so exciting and thrilling to just have this taste, if you will, of other cultures and, and um, all of the swapping of ideas. But the fashion industry was also beginning to learn the hard way that with greater global reach comes greater global responsibility. However, when it comes to designers like Karl Lagerfeld or Jean-Paul Gaultier, you know, Jean-Paul Gaultier got inspired in New York one day by seeing a group of Hasidic Jewish men walking by and decides to make this rabbi chic collection. You know, that's when we start these conversations of, okay, look, you know, this is, okay, you were inspired, but hands off of this. It won't be until at least a decade later that we start coming to terms with this practice of, you know, just how relaxed we are in being inspired by someone else's culture or faith and infusing that into our designs. The increasingly globalized culture of the 1990s didn't just help Karl Lagerfeld imbue French fashion with new energy, sometimes to brilliant or provocative effect. Karl was also one of the first designers to recognize that our global interconnectedness gave him an opportunity to expand Chanel's brand and his own image across the world. Karl took an intrinsically French, rather bourgeois house, and he made it global. One of Lagerfeld's key instincts was that a global brand must have an instantly recognisable look, a way to announce itself throughout the world. But how do you accomplish that when your design aesthetic is based on mixing up so many different influences? Karl had an answer. Reinvent an iconic logo. Two capital C's, each the mirror image of the other, interlocking as if in a class. You have to remember, he's also the guy who made the logo FF for Fendi. It's why he loved making all different envelopes and paper and, and books. is because it was all about the letter, about calligraphy. So calligraphy represented design to Carl. And so he used logos to be part of the design, not in the idea of just making a logo. Eric Wright again, Carl's right-hand designer. It had to graphically mean something and work and have a balance. I think that's why Chanel had so much success with its logos, because Carl was approaching it more as a graphic identity to give to Chanel as opposed to just a logo. And with an identity that carries the timeless history of Coco Chanel, combined with the future-facing style of Karl Lagerfeld, you can sell almost anything. Carl did more with those C's than than is really even imaginable. By putting a double C logo on something like a simple cotton tank top, suddenly something that you could buy, you know, at the corner store, you know, at your local pharmacy or at JCPenney or at Bloomingdale's became Chanel. Led Borelli Person is Vogue's archive editor. Many people could not ever buy into that world of Chanel or the quilted bag with the double C hardware. But maybe they could buy the hosiery with the double C print, or maybe that would inspire them to buy the lipstick with the double C 
by putting it on a lot of things, but a lot of things, it Chanelized the thing, but it also carried the myth of Chanel into the world. And the magic was, while Chanel remained exclusive, Chanel could infiltrate the world in, in many ways, but while remaining Chanel. When I took over, it was forgotten. I made it that way again to push it, and now I have to push it where the future goes. While Carl was establishing the myth of Chanel around the world, he was, just as importantly, also establishing the myth of Karl Lagerfeld. He wanted to become the, this figure that was recognized and celebrated and iconic. And that became part of the mystery and the magic of Chanel as well. And he used that to Chanel's advantage and, of course, to his own advantage as well. He was not a shrinking violet. <laughs> his own identity became intimately connected with the house of Chanel. Mark Holgate. For one thing, it was his look. And it was an unchanging look. He's also an incredibly smart, incredibly erudite, and incredibly witty man. So he was able to fire off one-liners so that he became a personality. He wasn't just some kind of anonymous designer that you saw bob out at the end of a runway show rather nervously and disappear behind. I mean, he wasn't a hogger of the limelight, but he was someone who had a confidence and an ability to engage with who he, who he was and um, his voice, and also that of Chanel. He had a tremendous sense of humour. Claudia Schiffer, again. For one of the Chanel campaigns, we went to Vienna, and I remember Carl dancing the waltz in front of us, laughing. And I recall in Munich for the autumn winter 1993 Chanel campaign, an amazing denim collection. I'd been working with Carl and Chanel for over five years by then. And on that particular trip, we were both so happy to be back in our home country. We enjoyed eating our favorite German delicacies, such as Hefekluse, German sausages and sauerkraut, and trying to get the rest of the crew to partake. <laughs> they were unconvinced and an impressive work ethic that allowed him to successfully juggle the many roles that he played. Carl loved his work, and he never went on holidays. We often joked that we were the only people who had the discipline not to drink and live healthily. By the late 90s, Lagerfeld decided to give himself an aesthetic makeover to more clearly convey what the Carl Lagerfeld look was. At a certain point, he decided that he wanted to wear 80 slim men's clothes and went on a, a diet, which he wrote a book about. And then his style changed and became even more iconic. And so he wore often jeans, high collared white shirt, jacket, tie, fingerless gloves, chrome hearts, and often uh, like an estate peach piece brooch, a beautiful pin, you know, with a star sapphire or something on his tie and almost always the sunglasses. He did this gear shift that you realize that Carl was no longer just the famous designer Carl Lagerfeld. He was now the brand Carl Lagerfeld. By making his own image just as important as the brand he worked for, Carl Lagerfeld essentially invented a path for the celebrity fashion director a path many other creative directors would tread after him. When you think about the 90s and the arrival of Tom Ford at Gucci, you think about the arrival of Marc Jacobs at Louis Vuitton, you think about the arrival of John Galliano at Givenchy and then at Dior, and the arrival of Alexander McQueen at Givenchy, all of which happened really in the kind of mid to late 90s. 
That was the result, I believe, of Carl and his success. And Carl's influence wasn't just limited to celebrity. I think the success of Carl really probably made a lot of the industry think, well, we should get in on that action too. We should be thinking about how we can transform these houses that we own and make them kind of fabulous, dazzling fashion powerhouses where people are going to be drawn to it for all sorts of different reasons. I think Tom understood, like Carl, what pop culture buttons to press, how to get buzz, how to get heat, how to get excitement into your brand, and how that heat and buzz and excitement needed to be touched at every aspect of the way that you interacted with the brand, from runway images, the product, of course, the experience of the store, uh, the celebrities that were wearing it. It was a very clever orchestration that Carl had done at Chanel, and then I think we saw it play out for the rest of the 90s with other designers and other houses. I think so many of those designers that came to the big fashion houses in Paris and Italy, they brought their own energy and brilliance and, 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 and vision to things, but the roots go back to Carl and Chanel. Karl Lagerfeld's legacy, beyond the successes and the controversies, beyond his larger-than-life persona, was the path he forged for the creative fashion director. Thanks to Carl, a creative director could be their own force, their own entity, separate from the houses they designed for. He took one of the most iconic and established houses of fashion history and gave it new life. What he did was in some ways just as powerful as what Coco herself had done in her own lifetime. And in doing so, he changed the structure of the fashion industry forever. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen, and Megan Lubin, edited by Maura Waltz and Stephanie Fu. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman, mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Powson, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Guiducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue.